So, Tim, can I pray for you? Please, yeah, thanks. Well, Father God, we pray for Tim. Lord, that he has very kindly agreed to do this topic. Lord, thank you for his many years of, of, um, of understanding and, and growth in his walk with you. And I pray, Lord, you would draw from his faith, his wisdom, his research, and all the other people that he's chatted to about this subject before preaching here today. Lord, that you would take all of that and encourage us and strengthen us in our walk with you. Amen. 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 Thanks, Tom. Right. Am I on? Can you hear me okay? Great. Um, as Tom sort of alluded to, really, I'm not quite sure how this fell to me to pick up uh, this theme of sex and sexuality, but it certainly felt like a hospital pass at the time. And I've worked my way through, as you can imagine, a whole raft of newspaper, magazine, and other articles. And to state uh, a glimpse of the blindingly obvious, this issue is, in today's society, a big issue. Today's society is obsessed with this subject. So-called reality TV, uh, TV like Love Island, Naked Attraction, Netflix's Sex Education hold nothing back. And what would have been hidden away on the top shelf of newsagents when I was a young man as at least softcore pornography barely a generation ago is mainstream media now, with sex of one sort or another apparently an essential part of every story. For those of you who remember her, Mary Whitehouse must be turning in her grave. And in all of this, I found myself thinking that I'm not sure I'm the right bloke to talk about this stuff anyway. I've been married to the same woman for nearly 48 years, Christine, and she is literally the only woman I've ever been out with or kissed in any sense passionately, never mind about anything else. But uh, like many, if not all of us, I've had to wrestle, we've had to wrestle with these issues as the reality of the changing culture has impacted on our own families, our own family. So here we go. After much playing around, to coin a phrase, I decided to look first at what the Bible has to say, then consider current culture and finish with some questions and I think a challenge. And I want to stress I speak as a Christian primarily to other Christians, those whose identity is in Christ Jesus, not in their sexuality. But the gospel we seek to live out is a gospel of grace and mercy for everyone, bar none. So we need to be careful where we draw lines in the sand and make judgments about others. Our job is to draw people to Jesus and to encourage them to wrestle with his teaching, as we have all had to do. So first to the Bible, a book about God, about creation, including us, and about how God has saved us through the work of Jesus Christ. We are sexual creatures. God made us male and female, and amongst other things, the Bible is a story about human sexuality. But maybe surprisingly, of the 780,000 or so verses in the Bible, or sorry, words in the Bible, only around 2,000 talk about sex directly. Of the 76 specific verses, 41 are in the Old Testament, mainly in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and 35 are in the New Testament, notably in Paul's letters. Interestingly, Jesus only refers to sex around 15 times, mostly when he was faced with questions about adultery and divorce. In stark contrast, roughly 15% of his preaching and 11 out of his 39 parables are about money 
wealth, possessions, who has it and how do they use it. And he's far more pointed about those issues along with religious hypocrisy than anything to do with sex. Nonetheless, of course, the Bible is usually portrayed as sexually repressive, with Christians being essentially against it. Hence, Queen Victoria's famous instruction that Christian ladies in her realm should lie back and think of the empire. But the truth is that sex is part of the created order. And like the rest of creation, it was designed to be good. Indeed, very good. The first husband and wife were both naked and felt no shame. And through sex became one flesh. And though clearly affected by the fall, sex remained something to be celebrated and protected throughout the entire canon of Scripture. Never a cause for shame between a husband and a wife. It was to be honored, cherished, and enjoyed as the gift of God that it is. We had a reading from Song of Songs this morning. If you haven't uh, read Song of Songs recently, I recommend you have a good read through. Um, And as it says in the book of Proverbs here on the screen, the wise father instructs his son to rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. And husbands and wives owe it to each other. Paul, who of course is usually portrayed as anti-anything to do with women and sex, says to the church in Corinth that each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. He then adds, the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. And crucially, in the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. In a society where patriarchy was the norm, for the husband to have authority over his wife's body was nothing special. But the idea that the husband should only have one wife and that he didn't have authority over his own body was an unprecedented restriction on his sexual freedom. And in both the Old and New Testament, frequent marital intercourse is prescribed as a guard against a wandering eye and a lustful heart. And it can go on well into old age, as Abraham and Sarah proved when they had a baby in their 90s. Not something I would necessarily recommend. (laughs) But it's not just about children. Although in Genesis chapter 1, God blessed the man and woman and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, that isn't the end of the story. Chapter 2 makes it clear that a man needed a complementary and co-equal partner to be united with in one flesh, which in Hebrew implies almost becoming one person. Sex is about pursuing physical and emotional as well as sexual union. It's about intimate friendship, exploration, discovery, and delight. And under God's blessing, it often results in children, but many couples, as we know, can't have children. And there's no suggestion that such couples shouldn't have a deeply enjoyable sex life. It's also clear that God's ideal is that sex belongs within a loving, exclusive, lifelong commitment. Marriage is often used as an image of our relationship to God himself. 
Many of the Old Testament prophets liken God to a husband. And Jesus uses wedding and marriage uh, imagery, with the church in Revelation, of course, being described as his bride. But neither marriage or sex is what truly makes us human. Above everything else, we are all incredibly of value and significance before God. And we can live full, blessed, meaningful, God-glorifying lives without being married or ever having sex. Sex is good, but God's love for us is the highest form of love. And that love is reflected in those who are single, childless, bereaved, and in the relationship between loving brothers and sisters, or in deep friendships like that between David and Jonathan. Jeremiah never had sex, nor did Elijah or John the Baptist, and neither did Jesus. In fact, some early Christians actually began to wonder if abstinence represented a sort of inside track to spiritual fulfillment, which is presumably why the Corinthians wrote to Paul about it. And some say Paul was a widower, out of interest, and they asked him about this whole business of abstinence. And Paul replies about the need to be generous and reciprocal in the marriage bed. But he then adds that he wished there were more celibates like him. But he recognizes that God gives some the gift of marriage and others the gift of celibacy. And he's happy to acknowledge that. Now much of this, of course, inevitably agitates and disturbs today's culture. But the reality is that issues like homosexuality, adultery and divorce have been around since Adam was a lad. But there have been some bewildering changes over the last 10 or 20 years, and we'll all be well aware of that. Huge pressure on the church to change its position on issues like same-sex marriage, civil partnerships, or conceiving a child alone. Then there are the transgender and other gender fluidity debates. A myriad of sexualities within a bewildering series of initials and gender-neutral pronouns, with so many people apparently defining themselves by their sexuality, by who they have sex with. Statistics are dangerous things, but apparently only about 4% of the population now agree that the only correct place for sexual activity is within a heterosexual marriage. In a 2014 survey of 11,000 students, 94% had had sex within the first few weeks of starting a new relationship, around 30% on their first date. A third of 25 to 34-year-olds had sex in one-night stands with someone they met online. And the average age of first-time heterosexual intercourse is apparently now 16, with nearly a third of boys and a quarter of all girls sexually active before then. And whilst people have strict standards for the purity of water or air or food, they consume without reservation the most wretched pornographic filth. The body has mechanisms for excreting poisons. The soul doesn't, other than Christ, which we're going to come back to. And these images burn in the mind forever. An organization called Pornhub, apparently the market leader, 
says its videos were watched by 33.5 billion times in 2018 by 92 million daily visitors. And that figure's gone up from 64 million in 2016. And there are 64,000 new visitors to their sites a minute. In an increasingly isolated society, for many today, sex doesn't equal love. It equals connection and instant gratification. If you're used to getting what you want immediately, why go through the hard work involved in relationships when you can watch porn and or have a series of takeaway one night stands without commitment? And so-called progressive intellectuals will encourage everyone to relentlessly push these boundaries and other boundaries. And as Christians, we must surely reach out to those who have one-night stands and sex with multiple partners and offer something. Offer community and relationship founded on love and acceptance with God, which will fill a hole that loveless sex cannot. But how do we do that? This song may help. Let's stand and sing a song about grace.
Now, as you'll know, the Church of England is currently debating human identity, relationships, marriage, and sex as part of the 2017 Living in Love and Faith project. And they are struggling, as one contributor said, to find a piece of carpet on which they can all stand. I thought that was rather nice. Prompted by the change in law to allow opposite-sex civil partnerships, the House of Bishops of the Church of England recently issued a pastoral statement, which was, I stress, like Paul's letters aimed at Christians, those who've accepted Christ as their saviour and are looking for guidance as they attempt to act as salt and light in a fallen world. Now, while Paul makes it clear that it's not his business to judge those outside the faith, the bishop's statement issued from within a church, it has to be said, riven with scandals and a horrific legacy of sexual abuse, inevitably proved to be controversial. It included the advice that sex should only take place between married heterosexual couples, that marriage is a faithful, committed, permanent relationship between a man and a woman, central to the stability and health of human society and the best context for raising children. And they urged abstinence between gay and unmarried couples. Now, many applauded the statement, which they rightly argued simply remains faithful to well-established teaching on Christian sexual ethics. They pointed out that whilst the church may be full of hypocrisy, that doesn't invalidate the law of God that the church seeks to represent. Any more than corrupt politicians invalidate democracy or corrupt bankers invalidate banking laws. Others claimed, with I think some justification, that it simply alienated many in the church. And arguing that we care too much about sex and too little about love, they believed that it further corroded our moral relationship to the world. And I suppose the essential question is, do we see the church as a sort of minority religious club with biblical rules that we're going to stick with, and which, if others want to join, they must accept? Or do we lower the drawbridge to fit in with modern society, 
hoping to draw more people into the kingdom, introduce them to Christ. Now, much has obviously changed in church attitudes over the last few years. We now recognize that, for example, marriages fail for any number of reasons. Women, in particular, have no longer to live in abusive relationships or stay locked in controlling, soulless marriages. And divorce is no longer met with the threat of public humiliation. But in a world dominated by the collapse of the family, pornography, abortion, adultery, promiscuity, how far should we, the church, bend to current culture? Now, at the end of the day, I think much of the answers come down to how we interpret Scripture. Back in 2016, I was driving overnight up to Cumbria, listening to the final presidential debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And responding to a question about why this election was so important, an American commentator explained that the new president would appoint at least one, maybe two, and even maybe three Supreme Court judges. And they would either see the U.S. Constitution as written in stone, every word needing to be adhered to just as it was written all those years ago, or they would see it as a document written in time, in history, which needed to be understood within the culture of the day and interpreted by what it was trying to achieve, by what the founding fathers were trying to achieve when they wrote it. And listening to that conversation, I have to say it struck me that it's not a bad example of how we tend to use the Bible. Someone famously said that a text taken out of context is a pretext. In other words, when we read a verse, we need to see that verse within the context of the passage, understand it within the context of the chapter or the letter that it is written in, and within the context of the Gospels and Scripture as a whole. So if a verse seems to be saying one thing, we need to look at the rest of the Bible, to the themes, to the great golden threads that run through the Scriptures, and think deeply about the words and the intent behind them within the historical circumstances and cultural background. And we need to acknowledge our own cultural baggage, the stories we have been told, and ensure that we're not driven to judgment by the fear that somehow God is going to stop loving us if we make the wrong choices. This series is all about preaching an unchanging gospel into an ever-changing world. But what is the unchanging gospel? The answer must surely be Jesus, who is the ultimate revelation of God. The whole Bible points to him. The Old Testament anticipated and looked forward to him. The gospel reveals him, and the rest of the New Testament explains him. And what does Jesus epitomize? You'll have your own views. There may be many answers. But surely, love, grace, mercy, acceptance, forgiveness must be pretty well at the top of the list. Listen to the story from John's Gospel. Kate's going to come and read to us. So today's reading is from John 8, which can be found on page 1073 of the Church Bibles. And actually, I'm going to start at 
verse 2. At dawn, he, Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered round him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are loads of other gospel stories full of grace and mercy, but I love this one. It not only talks of Jesus drawing something in the sand, and there's been books written about what he was drawing and writing in the sand, but of him challenging the lines that others were drawing and suggesting that those without any sin should feel free to cast their stones. Interestingly, it was the older ones who slunk away first. Often the older we get, the more entrenched we can become. Crusty old generals can be a real pain. (laughs) But the truth is that the older I get, the more reluctant I am to draw lines. There are some that I'm pretty solid on. Christ lived and died and rose again. And that as a result, I am forgiven and I have a place in the kingdom. But as to judging others and their decisions, their situations... I'm increasingly less sure. Scripture teaches us about ceremonial law, like the Old Testament sacrificial system, civil law, like stoning adulterers, and moral law, how we should behave. And I think Jesus replaces the first two and resets the bar for the third. His greatest condemnation was for those who weighed others down with rules and regulations, what he called the burden of the Pharisees. His burden, he said, is light. He came to preach good news, proclaim freedom, release the oppressed. Where humans tend just to judge, God balances judgment with mercy. Has no one condemned you? Then neither do I condemn you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what is the cultural context of those biblical passages that, for example, talk directly about same-sex relationships? Actually, there's only about seven of them. Four verses in the Old Testament, four references in the Old Testament, three in the New, mostly referring to men. In the culture back then, most men were married to at least one woman, concubines were accepted, and homosexual activity was relatively common. But the active participant 
was always older and usually of higher social status, with a passive recipient, a younger, often prepubescent, 8 to 12-year-old boy, a powerful, rich man using boys as playthings. So does the story of Sodom in Genesis chapter 19 actually condemn non-consensual, unwanted sex, i.e. rape, more than anything else? Likewise, there's a story in Judges chapter 19, which describes what I would think is appalling behavior of an old man who offers his own daughter and his mistress rather than see the hospitality to a stranger betrayed. Is that more about rape and the lack of status of women than consensual sex? In his various letters to the churches, Paul, Paul includes lists of vices like lusts and uncontrolled desires. But he also includes idolatry, slander, greed, hatred, discord, selfish ambition, drunkenness, dissension, envy, to name but a few. The lists are quite long. Is one vice more damning than the others? If God's love is the highest form of love that exists, can it be that his love can be received, experienced and reflected in a loving, committed and exclusive same-sex relationship? Can it be blessed? Now, you will no doubt all have your own opinion. Some Christians would immediately say, no, it's always wrong. Others would say yes to this genuine love, but no to sexual activity because it's not in line with the teaching of the Bible. Hence, celibacy, which I stress is the official Church of England line today. Others will say yes, including the sexual activity. The individuals concerned are loved by God and they can be blessed by God if they are in a long-term faithful relationship. Now, this is obviously controversial. And in all honesty, I carry some baggage here. The man who taught me to swim when I lived in Australia as a young boy was a chap called Mad Mike Calvert. And uh, Mike worked for my father. He, was a, he had fought as a chindit in the jungles of the Far East against the Japanese in 1944-1945. And I met him later on in life. In fact, I brought him to the staff college in Camberley here to take part in what I call the realities of war study, along with a few other people. He was one of the bravest men I'd ever come across. But he was drummed out of the army after the war for being a suspected homosexual. That's bad enough, but sadly today's debate on this and other related issues has gone what we can only call nuclear, riven with increasingly nasty exchanges, even hatred. Social media has weaponized everything, taking the place of God as the all-seeing eye. I used this slide before when I preached on loneliness, but it bears repeating the tenderness of individual contact, not the cruelty of the social media crowd. The radio presenter, Richard Coles, lived with apparent love, commitment and loyalty with a man called David. Both of them were ordained in the Church of England. David died recently, and people, presumably including those who called themselves Christians, responded by bombarding Richard on social media, saying that David would now be in hell, that he would be next, and that their relationship was scandalous, that they were unfit to hold representative roles in the church. Do we really believe that Jesus, the Lamb of God, who came to take away 
sins of the world would approve of such viciousness? Planks and specks come to mind. Whatever our views, as Christians, we must not simply load our shotguns with isolated verses from Scripture and fire them off in all directions, not caring where they land or who gets hurt. Such actions are all too reminiscent of the Pharisees' approach in Jesus' day. Some kindness and less judgment wouldn't go amiss. Whilst we want to teach in a conservative way in our preaching and our teaching, we must surely be full of grace as well as truth. My final point is this. Jesus, you will have heard, did say at the end of that passage in John's Gospel that the woman concerned should go and leave her life of sin. Her adultery was therefore sinful. But she wasn't condemned. And if you're feeling overwhelmed with a sexual sin, remember that nothing can separate us from the love of God. That is in Christ Jesus. God promises to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and pour his grace on all of us so we can move forward healed from hurtful sexual choices or indeed experiences. And a communion service is a good time to allow him to do that. So in summary, sex is good. Indeed, it's very good. God invented it. And he approves. Yes, there are rules, including being faithful and committed, but they are designed to ensure that we get the best from it and we should take them seriously if we're to lead a sexually satisfying and contented life. And we need to make that clear, especially to this younger generation who are chasing something. But when we fail to keep them, we need to know that we are covered by Christ's sacrifice on the cross, by his love his grace, his mercy and forgiveness. And wherever we stand on this, please don't join in the chorus of hateful criticism. Remember, as I often say, we may all be surprised by those we meet in the kingdom of heaven. Amen.